Good morning. I do bid you greetings uh, from Pastor Jason Montgomery at Faith Community Baptist Church, and really am thankful to be here. It's, it's been a few years. I think the last time I probably came was about 2019 or so, and uh, it's a great privilege to uh, preach for the congregation of my own, my own uh, professor. So our, <clears throat> excuse me, our text for this morning is Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5 through 22. Now, in the interest of just being somewhat thorough, I'm going to read the text first, and then we will pray before we proceed. Ezekiel chapter 1, Jeremiah Lamentations, Ezekiel. Verse 1, now it came about in the thirteenth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God on the fifth, month, fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. A great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of the bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies, and each went straight forward wherever the spirit was about to go. They would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings, 
for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them have the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for the rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them, and whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse, that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis luzili, in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Now, I noticed the appearance of his loins upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins, and downward I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Let's pray. Our Lord God, how majestic is your name. For which of us men can behold your face and live apart from your grace? For you have privileged the prophets of old to have such visions, to understand a likeness of things in the heavenly places that they might hope one day in the Christ who was promised. We praise you, O Lord, for the privilege 
of the full realization of that promise recorded in Holy Scripture concerning the person and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that in him we might find freedom and that in him we might also find hope. We bless you this day on this Lord's Day, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've drawn a lot of help uh, from two figures in church history, one by the name of William Greenhill, the other by the name of Benjamin Keach. So I'm not bringing forth anything original and don't intend to. You see, Ezekiel chapter 1 begins as a vision from God about the things in heaven. You see, he's got a glimpse of heaven, and that is something that's supposed to encourage him in a duty as a prophet. Now, Ezekiel is a contemporary of another prophet, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's people were not really listening to him. And that's part of the reason why God had called Ezekiel to be a prophet, to basically authenticate everything that Jeremiah was saying. One of the interesting things about this text is all of the imagery of these living beings. There's faces, there's body parts. And if we're not careful, I think we would miss the entire purpose of the text by trying to visualize how this is supposed to look in our head. As I read it to you, you must have had great difficulty in trying to put that in your head, right? Well, the truth of the matter is the subjects in this text are actually angels, particularly between verse 5 and 22. Now, we have a different problem to solve because this is not what angels look like. Angels are pure spirits. You couldn't see them, even if you wanted to. Now, there are a lot of things in this world that you can't see, but if you had a really good microscope or something, or or a really good telescope for things afar, you could probably see them, right? So, Like a little bacteria under a microscope. I mean, if you had a good enough microscope, you could see it, okay? If you had a good enough microscope for like an atom or some subatomic particle, you could probably see it. Reason being, they're made of of material things, okay? Things of the spirit are not necessarily material, okay? Particularly, for, for example, angels. That gives us a little bit of a quandary. What do we make of this text if angels are invisible, technically? That is a question that we will seek to answer, or at least one of the questions that we will seek to answer. But as we focus on the angels, we do not want to forget the central figure of this text in general, Ezekiel chapter 1, is actually the Lord who created them. For what are these beings for, if not for the worship 
and service of the God who created them. Hence, what will they do beyond covering themselves and bowing down before the God who created them who is revealed at the end of Ezekiel chapter 1? Now, interestingly enough, Ezekiel as a prophet, he comes uh, from um, the area of Chabar, actually kind of the same place where Abraham came from originally. And he himself is not personally experiencing the direct exile of Babylon. So Babylon is another nation that is judging the Israelites for their sins. God is using them to judge the Israelites for their sins. And Ezekiel is essentially being called out of his semi-place of comfort to now be a prophet to a bunch of people who have hated and stoned other prophets. This is a serious calling, but one that a prophet does not easily ignore. Particularly in verse 4, as he beholds, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great, uh, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. This is, this is a frequent metaphor that the scriptures use concerning the announcement and the coming of God. What is Ezekiel supposed to do at this point other than behold the glory of God and behold him in fear and righteousness? We have to deal with another small minor question as reformed people. Exodus 20, chapter 4 says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or likeness of what is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water underneath, under the earth. At the same time, God has commanded his people in Exodus chapter 25 to create a temple with images of cherubim, which is a type of angel. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherub shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You see, in Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, we have the provisions of not making an image of things in heaven and certainly not bowing down or worshiping them. So, if God is not a liar, and he is not, and God is not unholy, and he certainly is not, how can he give, us a, how can he give them a command to craft, essentially, images of angels in the temple? I think the answer is quite simple. Those are actually not images of angels. They don't actually bear a resemblance of what angels actually look like because angels are invisible. Okay? In fact, one of the re- this is a small issue, but one of the reasons why you're visible, I can see you, is because you're made of material things, like you have matter as a part of what you are. So because of that, I can see you. But... And, and that's another reason why I can see you in one place. But an a- angels worked a little differently than that. They don't, have, they don't have a kind of a body to restrict them in one place. 
So then it begs the question again, what is actually going on here? As I said before, these descriptions of the angels in the temple and these descriptions of the angels in Ezekiel chapter 1, though they are not what they look like, they do teach us something of what they are like. Okay? In other words, as we recall in other places of Scripture, when you think of the word lamb, you're now drawn to the idea of a sacrificial lamb. You're drawn to a concept. So these physical things in the real world are a means for us to understand eternal and spiritual realities. How else would you give a description of something invisible in the heavens above if you didn't have physical things to explain to physical and spiritual people like us? We are both body and soul. We need the aid of physical things to explain these things, to make sense of these things. So, it's one of the features of visions in general. When you see a vision in the Bible, whether in the book of Revelation or whether in the book of Ezekiel, you are being taught something extremely valuable for the increase of your faith, hope, and your love. But, we would be, we'd make a grave mistake if we tried so hard to visualize all these things in our head and come up with a solution that, that the Lord has never intended. Okay. For that matter, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the type of communication that is happening in, in the message itself is a communication of signs. Now, I'd have to unpack some Greek to be able to do that. I'm not going to do that, but, but for now, take my word for it or come and see one of us later or pastor your pastor later. But uh, there's a word called semino in the Greek, which is a word for signs. And the whole revelation itself is communicated in the form of signs. So all of the realities of the heavenly places are communicated to physical people using physical signs. We need those things to understand these realities, right? So, with that in mind, with that, with that main idea in mind, we can come back to the book of Ezekiel. One of the prayers, or at least one of the tenets of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10 is this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who does the will of God in heaven? Angels. Who does the will of God here? Us, technically angels too. But in other words, are we supposed to, by implication of the text, in order to understand part of what the will of God is, are we supposed to reflect on the duty of angels? I think so. I think there are many texts that actually give us that indication. One, now I didn't see this right away, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, if you wish, you may turn there. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, proceeds as follows. Since all these things are to be destroyed, concerning the, the end, in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in conduct, in holy conduct and godliness? Conduct, godliness. Keep that in the side of your mind for a moment. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Well, if everything down here is gone, what's left up there? Angels. Another, in, another slight indication of this is Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, neither they marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So in what sense can we be like the angels in heaven? That's a very, that's, in some ways it's difficult because it takes a lot of work to unpack this, but actually this section in Ezekiel gives us some of the placeholders for those. So, again, we, we ought to remember that above the angels sits the throne of God in heaven. Between the throne of God and the angels is a firmament, and it's a kind of a barrier. And they have to cover themselves because of the glory of God. So in their, both their character and conduct, there's something to imitate for us. But what is that? See, there's, uh, there's some, there's some uh, churches, uh, particularly one in Northern California who I won't name, uh, have a theology of angels wherein angel dust descends from the ceilings in the middle of corporate worship. Being that angels are actually invisible, and they may say, oh, wait, chapter, verse, tell me where this isn't possible. Angels are invisible. They're, they're spirits. That's not possible. As far as, like, angels don't actually have that. They do think of angels actually having material substances. There are some questions that we need to consider in this text. Because we have to face the fact that because Scripture uses these physical descriptions, we have to now make sense of this. The first is the question of why are there four angels being revealed here? Now, several commentators have rightly pointed out that there are four angels here because there are four faces. And these four faces representing the characteristics or character of angels, the righteous character of angels, of holy angels, are something called the four cardinal virtues. And I'll explain some of this later. Prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. 
Other commentators suggest that as the angels gather the elect from the four winds, it's supposed to teach us about the broad or wide presence of angels everywhere. I think there's reason to believe both of those things are true. It is interesting because sometimes we laugh about medieval philosophers raising questions about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Believe it or not, it is an important question because if God so commands the angels from heaven to do his duty, then we need to know in what manner he does that and how they can be in one place and another everywhere all at once extremely quickly considering the way that they are. Now, we were not, we're not going to do that in this sermon. But we don't need to essentially diminish the importance of such questions. Regardless. The character of angels... So now let us investigate the character of angels as revealed to us by this text, particularly in the four faces. The first face is the face of a man. In saying that the cherubim have the face of a man, this particular type of angel, we are at least saying that angels possess wisdom. Well, when you compare a man to other creatures, minimally you'd think of the fact that man possesses wisdom and other creatures do not. But Scripture actually gives us some of these connections. Uh, if you'd like, you may turn to 2 Samuel In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all that is in the earth. Now, wisdom is, is being used as Joab's Lord. But it's also used here of angels. So the association of wisdom to a man, a person, is now also being described with an angel. You see, angels in wisdom also possess prophetic knowledge. You can turn, for instance, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Nope, I will, I will take that text back. I think I, miss, I miscited this one. So I'm going to skip that one for now. Another face of angels is the face of a lion. In Proverbs 30, verse 30, we are drawn to the idea of the courage of a lion. 
So having the face of a lion is to suggest to us that angels possess courage. And the same idea goes with strength. Judges chapter 14, verse 18, emphasize the strength of a lion. William Greenhill says this, God gave us angels stronger than lions to be our guard and convoy through the wilderness of this world. And let this be a reason to praise God. So, as lions display courage in an animal sense, angels are courageous as well. The third face of the angel, or the third character of an angel, is the face of a bull. Bulls are described in the scriptures as displaying a willing obedience, faithfulness, and a sort of patience. They're, they're, they're like a work animal, right? You, you get them to do very difficult work. Now, part of that involves a kind of coaxing to do that kind of work. In fact, they thrive on doing this sort of work. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 11, Ephraim is described as a trained heifer that loves to thresh, in other words, work hard. Elsewhere, angels are said to be obedient creatures. And when you think of temperance, part of, part of temperance, what it is, it's, it's, it's really the idea of self-control in all things. But it's also a kind of self-control that one may encounter in the face of adversity. So, if you think of the bull for a moment, the, the idea that the bull is being whipped into labor and not lashing back and actually just continuing the labor would suggest this kind of self-control. Now, don't get me wrong here. Animals don't actually have true self-control and true courage. Okay? They may show these things. They may show these characteristics. Okay? But they do all things in instinct. They don't have the capacity to reason um, whether this is, or that is the right thing, like we do, or like angels do. But we are called to even the examples of ants when concerning prudence, the consideration of the past, present, and future. A prudent person is one who does the right thing at the right time, considering things that have happened before, things that may happen tomorrow, and... Uh, what he must do at this very given moment. We're drawn to the prudence of ants in order uh, to follow after them and not be imprudent. The fourth face is the face of an eagle. Now, eagles are said to have great eyesight and are very fast. This is just a small note. All of this animal imagery even if we didn't have scriptural examples of these characteristics, you, you actually could figure this out. Like, you know that an eagle flies in the air and can see its prey from, from very far up there and just can swoop and just catch its prey. It's, it's capable of doing these things. And so, though we are graced with scriptural examples of what these animals can represent in some associated characteristic, we don't technically need some of these. Like a study of the nature of eagles, the study of the nature of bulls, the study of the nature of man, 
some of these connections we can make, we can understand this imagery just by the fact that these things actually exist. We've seen them before. We've interacted them with, and we've interacted with them before. So, um, oh, but but regardless, Saul and Jonathan are described as having the swiftness of eagles. But regardless. Angels and having the four faces of a man, a lion, a bull, or an eagle, described as having these faces, display the fact that the angels have the four virtues of God's law, justice, courage, temperance, and prudence. A small note on these virtues. Your confession says... A few words or a few, a few ideas on about the phrase, the light of nature. It's the idea of natural law. Now, unfortunately, when, when all you have is that phrase in the confession, you might be confused, what is this about? When you go to some of our, our historical forefathers, they will tell you that this is the moral law of God without words. Okay, so the natural law is the moral law of God without words. Well, how would you express that? It, it's, it's, it'd be really, really difficult to express that. You see, if you look in any society, these are qualities that they can appreciate. Like you can go to a pagan society, and though it may be, they, though they may be really depraved in certain or other areas, you do see a sense of a desire for justice a sense of a desire for courage, a sense of a desire for temperance and prudence. These things are, are valued amongst them. And part of the reason they're valued is because God has created us in his image. And part of the ramifications for that, us being in the image of God as rational creatures, is that we are not to act like animals. Actually, there are things that, that dif- distinguish us from animals. A lion may look at a deer and think food. That's probably about it. Can I, can I capture and can I kill this deer in time to eat it? Instinct. That's all the lion's got. Okay. Now, you can look at a deer, and, and maybe if you, if you like venison, maybe, maybe you'll eat it. Maybe. Not a fan, but it, if you like it, you might eat it. But you might also see beauty. You might also see goodness. And other things like that. And part of the reason why you see those things is because you were made in the image of God. You have rational abilities. You have the ability to see, pursue the good. And what that means as far as you know, our evaluation of the world goes, we can now think of food unlike an animal. We can think of food in terms of Self-control. Not that food is bad in and of itself, but that we must think of food, for example, as something to be enjoyed in moderation. Drinks, something to be enjoyed in moderation. That's one of the things that makes us different than animals. And, And you should think about the ramifications for that in terms of Nebuchadnezzar who once was forced to walk on all fours, a loss of the common grace of God, 
an increase of his corruptions in sin. And he started to act like more like an animal than he did like a person. Concerning the conduct of angels, we are drawn to the idea of different parts, other body parts beyond the faces. The first item of the conduct is the wings. Now, if we recall from the text, the wings for angels are used for coverage from the glory of God. They, they cannot see the face of God and live. Even holy angels are not as holy or as just as the God who created them. Their wings are stretched out and they touch other angels' wings. By this it is signified that angels are united to one another and are able to swiftly be at any place they need to do the work of God. Just as the wings of an eagle allow it to go to places swiftly. But there's, a, there's an element of unity here and the angels now are operating harmoniously together uh, without fighting one another Getting divisive. No, they're doing the will of God in unity. The second point of conduct are the limbs. You see, the feet of angels can be, can be used to indicate strength. Angels are described in, in the Bible as possessing very great strength. Think of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They could not overcome the destruction that came upon them by the angels of God. Even the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 15, describes legs, just the idea of legs, as pillars, things, things of having a foundation or strength to it. But there is, there is another interesting aspect of limbs. Uh, limbs or legs also typically possess feet, right? And um, the feet of the preacher... In Isaiah chapter 52, are described as blessed. Blessed are the feet of those who bring the preaching of the word of God. You see, angels have been used in the, in the history of the Bible to bring the message of God to prophets. An angel had appeared in the burning bush before Moses and brought forth the voice of God to Moses. You see, God isn't physical, and he may not need angels to do any of this. But in order to glorify himself, he uses creatures like angels and like us to accomplish his purposes. And finally, eyes. I think of eyes, eyes are pretty straightforward, but eyes are used to see, like, okay, there's... Nothing significant in that. Eyes are used for seeing and not hearing. Okay, uh, Giving us the idea, because angels are said to have eyes all around, everywhere, right, in this text. They can see everything in this world. They can see everything going on. We've got two eyes. I can see everything in front of me. Maybe I can turn my head and my face around. That's about it. Okay. Angels don't have real eyes, obviously, but they have the ability to see what's going on and to understand it. Okay? That's different, for instance, from God. You see, the reason why God knows all things is not because he sees everything and then learns from it and understands it. That's not what's happening with God. 
God knows all things as he knows himself. He's created all things. He is the creator of all things. He, he as provider and, and governing all things in creation, he knows all of those things because he knows what he is doing. He's not, he's not looking at us and learning from us in terms of what we're doing and then react. That's not what he's doing. He's not reacting. Okay? Angels are learning and they are reacting, but they do have a vision of everything on the earth because, them, because of them being immaterial. Okay. So, the question is for us, what do we make of some of this? In the state of the resurrection, you, Christian, will enjoy a kind of a freedom that in this life you can only enjoy in part. I've thought of this as an illustration, but maybe some of you have are musicians. Maybe, maybe you know a little bit about music. And maybe you've been taught a little about music. Um, if you've picked up an instrument before you were trained in music at any given time, in all likelihood, you probably were not able to create a masterpiece. Somebody had to teach you musical notes, scales, chords, I don't know, things like that, right? Like they had to teach you something of what music is. So in other words, someone had to give you rules had to teach you the rules of music in order for you to be able to freely play. That's contrary to everything this world has to offer. Because everyone in this world wants you to leave them alone and let them do whatever they want. They think that's what freedom is. The ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, is not freedom. In contrast, it is slavery. Case in point, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. Given over to all of his passions, he became a slave to them. You see, the musician is not enslaved by the scales and the notes that he is taught. Rather, he is freed by them to produce True, good, and beautiful music. The law of God works very similarly. The law of God is not in and of itself bondage and slavery. Not in and of itself bondage and slavery. But rather, there is freedom in the law of God for the Christian. The law may bind the unjust sinner who has not come before Christ. Because who can stand before, an un, before a perfectly just God and live? None. But you see, for the Christian, because of the work of the Holy Spirit begun in him in his new life, he is free to be prudent in all of his dealings before God and men. And you can think of, you can think of prudence in several different ways. For instance, 
applied before God, for we can take the example of corporate worship. And a really practical example is like coming to church on time. If you have to come to church on time, that means you have to plan all these sorts of things, especially if you have a family, you've got to plan even more. Right? More, more than likely, there's so much to be done in order for you to come to church on time. But the benefits of coming to church on time is that you're not missing any of the elements. Good Christian, you are free to be prudent. You are free to uphold the law of God and order your affairs. Order your affairs for the Lord's day. You see, another just small practical example. I'm using this example because I blew it. So that's why I'm using this example. Okay. Um, for the longest time, uh, I had a cracked tile, cracked tile in my uh, bathrooms, right? Now, you who are handy know the problems that can cause. If I, if I leave cracked tile unfixed, moisture can get behind the tiles and it can spread. Things can get worse. And I can now have water damage behind my wall. It's a mess. Believe it or not, it is actually sin to be imprudent. But it's actually freeing to be prudent. Because imagine if I had fixed that tile. Imagine if I had prevented that mold. Imagine who I can host in my home after the Lord's Day. Maybe they need to stay over. Maybe a pastor is coming for a conference. Imagine if I had done these things. It is freeing. It frees me to be able to serve others. A Christian ought to be just in all his dealings with everyone, both God and man. You see, justice is giving to whom you owe them, that which you owe them. That is what real justice is. This world will tell you everything about what justice is. They will tell you everything except what justice actually is. Justice is giving to him whom you owe. Sometimes that's punitive. In other words, you may break your neighbor's window. Right, and, and, and you, might make some, you might make some repairing for that, right? But sometimes it's something a little bit more subtle. We love children here. We love children here. Parents, you owe a duty to your children to, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord to care for their bodily needs. That is justice due to your children. Children, you owe a justice to your uh, father and mother, to honor them. This is what you owe them. They owe, they owe us. I've, I've got children too. It is freeing. It is freeing that we don't have to figure this out. It is freeing that we can be just in our dealings before God and men. We owe God worship. That's one of the reasons why we come on the Lord's Day. We owe God worship corporately. Okay? But it's also freeing, because what do you get in the corporate worship? You get the grace of God given to you. And you increase and you grow in, the, in things of faith, hope, and love. There aren't, you, you can't buy this with money. 
You cannot buy faith, hope, and love with money. That's not happening. There's a lot you can buy with money. But the spiritual riches of gospel graces are things you cannot buy with money. It's impossible. They're immaterial. You cannot buy immaterial things with material things. That's not possible. You see, a Christian ought to be self-controlled or temperate. How often are we, are we swept with this or that addiction? And sometimes it's overbearing. Various temptations are not freeing. Succumbing to those temptations are not freeing. Self-control is actually freeing. It's, it will actually free you to do so much more. But it'll actually free you for more than that. But that's the topic for the next sermon. You see, it's, it's strange when we think about it, but even cowardice is described in the scriptures as sin. So cowardice is a vice or an evil thing that opposes the good thing, which is courage. Okay? Recklessness is not courage either. Okay? Some people think that, oh, if I just rah, 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 Proceed forward without thinking that's courage. That is not courage. All of the virtues are supposed to work together. So if you are being courageous, you're also being prudent. Cowardice can also cause laziness in some of us, does it not? Does not the scriptures speak to us saying that there's a lion outside? that I will not go outside. I will not do that which I am called to do. Cowardice can lead us to sloth. It's weird to think about, like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm neglecting my duty. That makes me a coward. Yes. Okay. But courage is actually freeing. Courage is actually freeing. You see, according to our conduct, we are free to approach the Holy of Holies in Christ Jesus. Not everyone was free to do that in the days of the Old Covenant. You are free to approach God in Christ Jesus. You are free to draw from the means of grace in ways that people of an Old Covenant would have thought unfathomable. You see, there are many ways to neglect these things. Whether the wandering of our minds or our hearts. But we would neglect so great a freedom if we failed to see the example that was given to us. Everyone is going to worship something. You're, if you're not giving justice to God, giving him that which he is, is due, you're going to be placing that energy somewhere else, placing those efforts somewhere else. Because God has made you for himself. One, one of the 
ways in which we are raised in this world, especially if, if we were not taught uh, by Christian parents. Everything becomes about, from, from our childhood, are we getting good grades? Are we going to get into college? Are we going to get that job at Google? Are we going to get married maybe one day? See that, see that chain of things? What's next? What's after that? What's after that? So, okay, you got all straight A's. Went to college, got the job at Google, you got married. Maybe you have children. What's, what's left? We're missing something here. We're missing something here. We're missing the fact that we weren't made just to do those things. Those are good things. Well, they can be good things. We weren't made just to do those things. We were made to worship and serve God. There will always be a sense of incompleteness. There will always be a sense in which we are enslaved to our passions if that is where we rest. But no, our Lord has provided us by himself, by his work, a means by which we would be blessed not only to have the full imputed righteousness that is owed to God, but that we, we, that we would be free. And this freedom, though we experience it fully in glory, we understand some of what that freedom looks like because of angels and because of the work of Christ. We understand what that looks like. There, there, is a, there is a real sense in which we can enjoy some of this right now. We can enjoy this freedom right now because it's been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord of heaven, you who have transformed us from dust to glory, have purchased a perfect redemption accomplished fully in your work, have given us faith, hope, and love that we might consider the wonders not only of the works of creation, but of those creatures you have made which are so mysterious to us. These creatures who are also involved with us in the corporate worship of God before you, the bottom of whose chariots touch down in this corporate worship service, the ramifications of which we all owe you worship and honor, but not only out of mere justice, but because of the love and the faith and the hope which you have imparted in us for you. For by your grace, we are saved not only the redemption of our sins, of a positive righteousness in Christ, but also the transformations of our very selves that we may understand and experience true freedom now and the glory to come. You who are most blessed today are gracious to give us your blessedness according to our likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.